evening, everyone, and welcome back to No Sleep. I'm your host, Chandraya Washington. Yeah, hey. Hey, good evening. Hey, glad to hear you guys. So tonight we're going to be talking about growing up millennials. And what I mean by that is I want the discussion tonight to really be centered around the things that influence millennial perceptions. We, as millennials, grew up at a time in really world history when things were moving fast all across the world. We were getting access to information. There were wars going on all over the world. There were so many different factors that fed into the perception that many millennials hold and carry with them today. And I just wanted to talk a little bit about some of those things and see what was most striking for us as youth growing up in a time in the world where anything could happen and anything was possible at the same time. And the first thing that I wanted to talk to you two about, just to paint the scene of how we could have arrived at those conclusions, is what or describe the community that you grew up in. What was it like for you as a child? Did you move around a lot? Were you or did you grow up in a neighborhood for your whole life? What were things like for the two of you? I can start. So um, I grew up in Detroit, Michigan, uh, primarily the west side of Detroit. Uh, I did move a lot, but it was pretty much always on the west side. Um, you know, I went to a couple of different middle schools, a couple of different elementary schools, but, you know, by the time I was in high school, I was pretty much, you know, at the same high school. But, um I would say my community was, I don't know, like growing up, it didn't seem as bad as it, as it does now. And I'm not sure if it was bad then. And I'm really not, you know, really saying that it's bad now, but I know there's a lot of things that were going on in Detroit that I was really oblivious to growing up. And I think that's just part of being a, a kid. Um, I think my parents did a good job of shielding me from a lot of things that I shouldn't have been exposed to at an early age. But, you know, I would say that my childhood was pretty normal, you know. I grew up, you know, playing outside. I really loved, like, video games. But, like, in the summertime, and we were outside until the streetlights came on. And, uh, you know, like, the nighttime was for video games and stuff like that. So, uh, I would you know, really say that my childhood was fairly normal. I don't know. What about you guys? Um, My dad was in the Army, so I kind of moved around a little bit. I was born in Germany, and then for two years after that, I moved to Tennessee. Then a couple years after that, I moved to Louisville, Kentucky, where I started school. And then my high school, that's when I moved to College Park, Georgia, in Atlanta, where I'm at now. So, kind of moved around a little bit, but like you said, Novell, my um, parents did shield me, too. They made sure I was protected, made sure that I didn't get involved in things that I shouldn't have and everything like that. So 
in my childhood, it was normal, but it's like I always kind of knew what was going on. They always make sure that I knew what was going on in the world, like any bad things going on, and they talked to me about it. My childhood sounds very similar to both of you two. Um, I didn't really move around a lot. I was born in Palms Love, lived there till I was in like the first grade. And then I moved to Little Rock, which is really from where I lived in Palm Love to where I moved to Little Rock. It's like a 20-minute ride. So <laughs> it wasn't that much distance. And I don't know. the At the time that I grew up, I think that's when the documentary Banging in Little Rock came out. And there was it was known that there was crime everywhere, but... Like the two of you said, I never experienced any of that. As a child, I was never afraid to go anywhere, or I never had knowledge of any of the things that were going on. And I wouldn't really say that I was shielded from it, because for the for the younger part of my life, you know, I didn't, I wouldn't have understood it even if I saw it, but. As I got older, I didn't I didn't live in a neighborhood where that was something that we saw every day. It was like a neighborhood where kids who may have come from really violent areas, um, their parents moved there to give their kids a more quiet and more stable life. And, like, it's still, like, you know, a lower-income black community, but it's a safer neighborhood than what they had left behind. And, but... Again, until I was older, I wouldn't have known that. And so, yeah, I played outside every day. I had video games, but, I mean, I was always out riding bikes with my friends, going to explore in the woods and stuff like that, just little country kids, stuff like that, you know, fairly normal childhood. I probably was exposed to more serious adult issues at a younger age, but because of the environment that I was in, it didn't, like, lure me into participating in some of those same behaviors that might have been dangerous or just unhealthy for my life. So what about what about the diversity of the areas that you grew up in? I know... Uh, Natiana, you said your dad was in the Army, so you moved around a lot. So I'm sure you got to see people of plenty of different cultures and all that. So how, how was that? Um, yeah, I did, especially in Tennessee where we lived. You know, we lived close to the base and everything like that. So it was pretty diverse. It wasn't until, like, I moved to Louisville, Kentucky. That's when my dad, you know, got out of the Army that it was majority black where I was. But other than that, I mean, I've experienced a lot of different, I won't say different cultures, but I've seen, you know, a lot of different things, I should say, from that experience. Okay. And what about you, Norvell? Uh, my my community wasn't really diverse. It was pretty much uh, all African-American. Detroit is pretty much a, a black city. Um, I think it's probably like 80%, you know, if not more. But uh, 
I, I would say that I wasn't really, you know, I didn't go to school. You know, my schools weren't really diverse, you know, um, any extracurricular activities I was in, any of that, you know, I didn't really get to see, you know, uh, any diversity until like maybe high school when we would go uh, with the marching band, concert ensembles and go and compete at, you know, different high schools and like, you know, suburban areas where, you know, the demographic was like the opposite. So mm-hmm. um, I went to uh, UAPB, which is a black college as well. So it was pretty much the same thing. Um, I didn't really get, you know, into a really diverse environment until I really started my professional career. And I, I moved around a lot, you know, all of my environments and, you know, were pretty diverse. Um, well, maybe diverse isn't the right time, but it was just, it was, it still wasn't diverse, but it was just, you know, not many black people around, like, you know, professional standpoint, a lot of the jobs that I've had, I've been like the only black guy uh, mm-hmm. around for the most part. Um, so I would say there's been some, some jobs I've had in some, some areas where it wasn't as diverse, but um, I was definitely able to see, you know, a lot of different parts of the country, uh, meet a lot of different people, all walks of life. But, you know, my community growing up was, yeah, just African-American for sure. Okay. Yeah, I'm I'm with you. I grew up the the small little neighborhood that I grew up in, right outside of Little Rock, was all black. We were the only little kids outside playing, and but I will say that even though we were all black, it was like a diverse mixture of black kids, and we were all into different things. Like I don't know, Pokemon battles and. <laughs> bike riding, trying to make ramps to jump off of, and we then we had the, those that were more interested in sports or more interested in singing, but just whatever anybody wanted to do, we always supported them in what they wanted to do and would participate really as a whole neighborhood in just a diverse set of activities on a day-to-day basis. We could be playing football one minute and, like, forming a gospel choir on the basketball court the next minute. So we all had, like, a diverse (laughs) – I know, right? (laughs) We all had a diverse set of interests. Um, We all grew up together, like, from little kids into our adult years. A lot of us didn't move out of the neighborhood until we were like 18 or 19 because we have families that, you know, want to keep their community together and don't want their kids to leave until their kids are settled down and everything like that. So a lot of us didn't leave the neighborhood until late. So we all got to experience life together. And um, I want to say about half of our neighborhood was a part of the LGBT community and it was always everybody was always embraced and supported regardless of what they were into or you know what what their lifestyles were who they loved we were just such a cohesive neighborhood and although we may have had our own bickerings with one another like you know it's like getting into a fight with your brother or sister you still have to be brother and sister at the end of the day <laughs> But my school, my school 
I want to say my school was diverse because we would bus in a lot of the smarter children or children who test higher to our gifted and talented program. And so that was really my exposure to being around kids from different cultures. We had, I had friends from India, um, Vietnam, Germany, just all over the world who just so happened to settle down in Arkansas and are, you know, now mingling in this class, just predominantly white, but still, you know, just to see other children of color being able to participate at that level, you know, was interesting. But outside of that, I didn't really deal with a lot of diversity until, like you said, Norvell, until I started to work. And then that's when, I don't know, the environments got a lot less colorful for me. How did you, like, I want to say, how did you deal with kind of like the, the changes in your environment? When you said there, you know, there are a lot of different, you know, people in your community, uh, but you didn't really start to see that diversity until you were like in school and older and getting into the working environment. Like, how did you deal with the, like that, that change in environment, that change in culture and being around people that may not be, you know, the same as you or may not have, you know, the same views as you? Oh, that was, that was rough for me. And it's almost like, I want to say I had these different identities, which I later just learned was code switching and just knowing how to talk to whoever I'm around. But I don't know, it was, it was really weird. And I, I feel on, especially the educational end, it was even tougher because it was only a handful of black kids that were in the gifted and talented program while all these other kids who were just as capable are left out. And, you know, there's like this dichotomy that's like, oh, you think you're better than us because you have this, or you think you're white because you're in class with white people and trying not to, I don't know, just having to steadily deal with not seeming like I'm trying to become the other or trying to be the other was a really, was really the toughest transition for me. And like knowing that I had to stay true to my identity, true to my culture, but at the same time having to conform to all of these systems that aren't of my culture and don't represent or accept my culture, it's, it was and still is difficult to navigate that for me. That's interesting. Do you because, ever have, uh, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, like, I've pretty much dealt with a lot of those same things. Um, so when I first, I think I got an internship in Memphis, Tennessee, and uh, I was a part of a leadership team that wasn't really that diverse, um, even though Memphis is, I, I think, a black city as well. Um, but the leadership team was not that diverse. It's, it's, you know, it didn't represent the demographics of Memphis. But that was probably the biggest culture shock 
um, not only just being around people that don't look like me, that don't, you know, walk, talk like me. Uh, it was stemming from coming from college and, you know, just growing up, just, you know, communicating the way I want to communicate and doing, you know, mm-hmm. what I what I think is comfortable and then going into the professional world. Like that was the biggest culture shock for me. It's like, hey, you know, I can't speak this way. They're not going to understand what I'm saying. or <laughs> You know, I have to mm-hmm. conduct myself in a different manner. And uh, I forget what you call it. What do you call it, like code switching or something? I, I don't know. I, I didn't mm-hmm. quite catch that. <laughs> but, you know, I turn it on and off like a light switch. And it's crazy. Like right. my wife laughs at me all the time because it's like speaking a different language. And it's just mm-hmm. I do it unconsciously because, it's, you know, I speak different around different people. It's not like I'm changing mm-hmm. myself and my personality, but it's more so like a communication tactic. Like if I speak right. the way that I speak, you know, with my wife to this person at work, they're probably not going to understand what I'm saying. Or if I speak to, mm-hmm. you know, somebody at church, like I speak to one of my cousins I've been knowing all my life, you know, they're probably not going to understand what I'm saying. So I unconsciously switched the way that I communicated. And uh, I I didn't know that I was doing it. I didn't know it was a name for it. I just, I just could turn it on and turn it off, you know. <laughs> Uh, like a light switch, uh, depending on who I'm speaking to. But, you know, it was never like a, a bad thing for me. Even though I, my community wasn't that diverse growing up, you know, we always had television and, you know, uh, I watched a lot of, you know, Cartoon Network, Nickelodeon and stuff like that. And you would see diversity on television then. And you know, I would know that there were other people in the world that did things a lot differently, you know. Um, mm-hmm. I can recall being a kid and like just dreaming about going to California and learning how to surf, you know, because mm-hmm. there were kids who like grew up <laughs> surfing and could like skateboard to school and stuff like that. And uh, my mom, I'm like, dude, nobody's skateboarding in the hood. Like, I don't know if they sell them <laughs> in this area. So I grew up with that dynamic, but it wasn't like weird for me to be around people that, you know, weren't like me. I kind of welcomed it because mm-hmm. I didn't think that it was abnormal, you know, and I think that's really how most of us should be, you know, we should embrace our differences just because somebody's different from you doesn't mean that they're wrong. And I think that's where a lot of people, a lot of people get it bad is, is they uh, think that you're wrong because you're different or you should act a certain way. And I really like how, you know, corporate America is changing too by embracing, you know, uh, African-American culture. You know, there were like mm-hmm. dress codes where you couldn't wear your natural hair. and You know, they weren't really embracing, you know, African culture in that way, and I think uh, it's changing. Times are changing, and uh, it's crazy that we're seeing this unfold, you know, uh, right in front of us, because when I started my career, it was, like, you know, taboo to wear, like, dreads to work, locks to work, you know. Now it's, like, becoming widely accepted. It's just, you know, I think the times are changing, and it's crazy that we're, we're a part of it as millennials. Yeah, it really is. So, Natian, did you, do you as a writer have to, I don't know, navigate weird cultural transitions? Or how did your background as a child of someone in the military prepare you to be able to navigate in just in your field of work and in life in general? Um, so I feel like at a young age, I had to learn how to code switch 
because like I said, like mm. I grew up around, you know, different cultures, but when I was around my family, you know, they were just like, what, why do you talk like that? You know, obviously a lot of people talk about, like talk about me because they would say, you know, I talk two country or I talk different. So I had to learn how to code switch at a very young age. And now, um, with writing, it's kind of like the same, like if I'm writing to the story for my friends, you know, some stuff I won't put in there as if I'm writing for an article for a newspaper or a magazine, mm-hmm. you know, I have to switch it up and change it. But yeah, growing up, it was just different, I should say, I guess growing up like with you guys, but I did have to learn how to code switch really young. Mm-hmm. I bet that was really cool. Just getting to experience different cultures and things like that. I know. Yeah, yeah, it was. Um, I had brought up education earlier, and, like, in Norvell, you mentioned how in your professional career you would often only be the only black person there. And it made me think about how, when I first got into an environment where I was the only black person and it made me feel weird being just, I don't know. It it was anyway, it was my first anthropology class that I had in college and it wasn't even like the blackness that made me, that kind of made my skin crawl for like being the outsider or the different one in the class, it was the things that they thought about or the the ideologies that they had and their knowledge of science and their knowledge of history that I had never been taught in my own community or that I didn't have access to because no one gives out that type of information freely to communities that they think don't read. And just the way that they were able to have conversations about evolution and why different cultures are fighting and why why people eat what they eat, the way that they were able to kind of participate in that dialogue without anybody getting upset or anybody, you know, feeling like their religion was being offended, just seeing that because I could, while I was there, just think of how those conversations would have gone if I had just said it over the table at Thanksgiving or something like that and how emotional it would have gotten. And they talked about stuff like that like it was nothing, (laughs) And that was a really big shock for me, just the information that they had. And I felt, I don't know, like I had been left out of a secret my whole life. Just And like I was in on a secret now that I had access to this all-white class where they share research like this all the time. And I don't know if either one of you have had to... <laughs> deal with anything like that, just the shock of feeling like, wow, they were keeping this type of information from us and then, you know, seeing how easy it is once you're a part of it. But that was that was a really big wake up for me as an as an adult, as a black person, as a thinker. 
I don't know, it really just expanded the way that I thought about the world. Yeah, I think that's more so, I don't know. I would probably attribute that to the educational system. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in certain areas, certain things are discussed. Um, educational programs are different. Funding is different. You know, the entire system is, you know, mm-hmm. different, I think, in different areas. And I think it's based on demographics. So lower income, you know, neighborhoods, uh, Detroit, for one. I think, you know, had a lot of schools that they weren't getting the same education uh, as someone who went to school, you know, 20 miles from the city uh, Mm -hmm. where uh, the demographics are a lot different and the income is a lot higher or the private schools, you know. So I think a lot of those, like, really, like, aha moments came at a later age for you know, some of us, because we just weren't, you know, subjected to it in school or at an earlier age mm-hmm. like others were. So I think some of us are kind of behind in that aspect. I know I felt that way with a lot of things as well. And it's not just from an educational standpoint. It's just, you know, the simplest things, you know, I live in Michigan. And like, they do a lot of hunting in Michigan, like a lot of deer hunting. I don't know anything about hunting. And it's like, why don't I know anything about hunting? Because nobody's hunting in Detroit. I'm just being honest. But if you go to the suburbs or you go to the more rural areas, you know, that's like a, a natural thing. That's that's done. Um, and that's something that I want to teach my children, but it's like I have to be intentional because it's not a part of our culture, um, I want to say. But if you go into, like, the rural south where, you know, it may be predominantly black and it may be totally different, I think it's just – based on the culture in those areas and, and what's normal and what's not normal, uh, which really dictates what we're subjected to at an earlier age or, or a later age. Yeah. That is definitely true. It is because my dad, my dad is an avid hunter. He is out there every hunting season. I don't know when it begins or ends, but he is there. <laughs> I'll never understand it. <laughs> I don't know. I think it's just like one of those like male rites of passage. I don't know. It's just you know, hunting makes us feel like men. It's don't ask me why. I, I don't know either. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's great that you don't know because it is now time for us to go to a quick break. <laughs> and if our listeners want to call in and chime in on this conversation. Feel free to dial in at 563-999-3660, and we'll get back to you. You're listening to the CWR Talk Network, America's voice for causes, issues, and life empowerment. This is the CWR Talk Network. Hashtag. One million strong. The CWR Talk Network is not just another talk radio network. 
We are a strong advocate for life empowerment, like empowering a generation that has been grossly misunderstood and disparaged to shatter the misconceptions about them. No Sleep was created to give millennials a platform to express themselves and let the world know who they really are and what they believe, their values, interests, fears, and more. This is a diverse group gender-wise and racially that we are very, very proud of. We invite you to tune in, whether you are a millennial or not, and learn from these outstanding young people. Listen every Wednesday night at 8 o'clock p.m. Eastern and 7 o'clock p.m. Central for No Sleep, Shattering Millennial Misconceptions. Hi, Mom. Is Claire's birthday party today? Me again, Mom. Where did I put my history book? Hi. Sorry, forgot one last thing. Sometimes it's hard to concentrate. At school, I start looking out the window, and then I forget what I was supposed to be thinking about. I know it seems like I don't care, but I do. It's just difficult for me. Love you, Mom. Bye. Join parents and experts at understood.org, a free online resource about learning and attention issues to help your child thrive. Brought to you by understood.org and the Ad Council. online you can be a witness and make a difference by letting the world know it isn't cool and by letting your friend know you care learn more at eyewitnessbullying.org brought to you by the ad council today we decided to walk to school the light counted 15 14 31 i mean 13 we took a left on carroll street and he's smart but he gets distracted i realized he forgot his homework i hope he doesn't have another bad day at school when you can see learning and attention issues from their side, you can be on their side. That's why there's understood.org, a free resource for the parents of the one in five kids with learning and attention issues. Go from misunderstanding to understood.org. Brought to you by Understood and the Ad Council. One in three adults in America have prediabetes, but most don't know it. To let people know it can be reversed before it becomes type 2 diabetes, professional basketball player Julius Randle is doing everything in reverse. I'm only dunking with reverse windmills. I drove the whole way to practice in reverse. I don't recommend it. This move's called the reverse shuffle. I do recommend it. And it took me months to learn how to speak in reverse, like this. <clears throat> Here's 10 almost for diabetes type 2 with living Ben has my mom. In other words, my mom has been living with type 2 diabetes for almost 10 years. So together, we want to say to the 84 million Americans at risk, exercise and healthy eating can help reverse prediabetes. Start by taking a simple one-minute risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its prediabetes awareness partners. <laughs> Bet he can't say that in reverse. Listening to the CWR Talk Network, America's voice for causes, issues, and life empowerment. This is the CWR Talk Network. Hashtag One Million Strong.
Welcome back, everyone. Uh, we are talking about uh, millennials and kind of like what has shaped us as millennials and, and our views. Um, we talked a little bit about our childhood and those types of things. Um, I have a question for the host. Like, how do you think that your childhood and your experiences shaped like how you are as a person? You know, just taking into consideration that you're a millennial, but you know, what do you think were those like pivotal moments in your life that really shaped you to be who you are today? Well, thank you for asking that, Norvell. <laughs> That's what I meant to ask when my phone was on mute. <laughs> but um, I feel like growing up in that diverse neighborhood really prepared me to be able to. I don't want to say tolerant because I think that's a stupid word for just accepting human beings, but like it prepared me just to be accepting of people and to to love people regardless of what I may or may not disagree with, unless of course it's on like a moral level because when it comes to a lot of the stuff going on in our country, I don't care how much, you know, you're supposed to overlook the flaws in people if it comes to, you know, the lives and the safety of people, children, anything like that. Like, that's that's not something I can disagree to disagree about. But I don't know. I My grandparents and my dad were always very, very good at telling me about what was going on in the world and some of the reasons why mostly like everything was happening to a lot of people in our communities or like just because they were black or, you know, most of the black issues we were, I was well aware about or well, well aware of. And, you know, they kept me up to date on different things that were going on in the news. They would include me, and conversations with them just to fill me in on what was going on, even if I wasn't at an age that I could understand. And they were both, or my my grand my grandparents were readers and writers, and that definitely encouraged me and made me want to seek out knowledge. And so I know just being able to have that kind of upbringing did a lot for me. And then. I don't know, getting older and seeing for myself the way that our communities were divided and reading up on studies of how, I don't know, like drugs were introduced to our communities and finding out this constant flow of knowledge that we got with our mighty access to the internet (laughs) during our generation. But just learning the history of all of, of everything I feel like that part has made me a little cynical about, you know, how likely things are to change in the world. But I don't know. I feel like my environment, like I said, prepared me to be a loving and accepting person and also to seek out knowledge and truth. What about y'all? Um, and mine isn't nearly as as elaborate. I, you know, I think my my parents 
played a pivotal role in who I am. Um, they're just nice people. And I think they raised mm-hmm. me to just be kind. Uh, they, they put that heart within me. Um, I think I was just raised. And I think they were intentional with what they subjected me to because there were a lot of stuff that was going a lot of things that were going on around me that I was just oblivious to. And I, I thank them for that because if I would have been fooling around with some things that I've been that I was messing around with, you know, a little bit older, I probably would have made a lot different uh, choices with my future. So um, I thank them for that. I would say the only other thing would probably be um, probably be I was bullied a lot when I was a kid. I was just like, you know, real skinny, nerdy kid. You know, like I don't know, I got picked on, but I used to get roasted like twenty four seven. I don't know. Like, kids can be cool. Like, it sucked. But, you know, as I got older, you know, I probably just learned how to fight and defend myself and learn how to, you know, roast and, and cap mm-hmm. with the best of them. I don't know what you all call it in your communities. But um, <laughs> I think it just made me not want to be mean to anyone, you know, because I know how that feels. So I'm always trying to spread love no matter where I go and just be kind to people, even when they're not kind to you, you know. Um and I think my faith in getting saved, you know, as I got older, has just really built on that. But, yeah, I think my parents and, you know, just just put a heart in me to just be accepting of people and love people. So that's my take. Yeah, moving around a lot and experiencing different cultures really helped me to, I guess, understand people better. And, yeah, that helped shape me into who I am today because I don't just look at people and just instantly judge. I try to understand where people are coming from, their situation, their background first. So that really helped me who I am today. And also my parents, of course. And like Norville said, um, my religion, my spirituality, you know, my parents kept me in church because my grandmother, she was a pastor. My dad was a deacon. So I stayed in mm-hmm. church, and that helped me so much too, to stay out of trouble, for one. And just to keep my mind and my and focus on everything. Okay. So now I would like to get into some of like the events that happen either within the country or within the world that happen during our lifetimes. I mean, we've had a lot of stuff to happen. <laughs> During our generation, we've had Hurricane Katrina, we've had several mass shootings, we've had government bailouts, we've had oil spills, there have been so many things that happen in the world and within our own country that had to have shaped us in some way, or at least given us an idea of our place within the country, or what the country meant to us. What were some of those things for for you two? Um, for me, I think nine eleven was a, a big deal. Uh, growing up, I can still recall, you know, where I was. I think I was like in seventh grade, maybe seventh or eighth grade. Um. When, when the towers fell, and I can, you know, recall a teacher uh, stopping class and turning on television, and us just talking about it in class, not really knowing what was going on, but, you know, 
being aware that, you know, something really bad just happened. And uh, I think that was, you know, when I really started to grow up and say, hey, you know, there's like some really bad things going on in this world. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a part of it. So I think that's when I really started to get subjected to like the realness of uh, the world that we live in. So that was something that really was like a wake up call for me it was 9-11. Other than that, I can't really think of anything. I can recall hearing about Columbine, but not really, if I think about it. Um, but, you know, growing up, I think 9-11 was like the biggest thing for me. Well, for me, because I was only like four when 9-11 happened, and so I really don't remember it that well. But for me, a pivotal moment was definitely Obama getting elected into office. And I only remember that so much because mm. I was in middle school, and I remember talking about it so much with my friends and my teachers. And then my brother got the opportunity to actually go and see him and everything like that. And I remember I was so mad because I just wanted to go so bad just to see like what was going <laughs> on. Like, this is history. Like, I want to go so bad. So that was like a really a pivotal moment for me that I remember. Oh, yes. I will never forget that pivotal moment. <laughs> I had just, had I graduated high school yet? I mean, yeah, I had just graduated high school. It was my first time getting to vote. And up until that point, and still sometimes today, you know, I thought like, oh, whether I do or whether I don't, it's not going to matter. And even though I went in with that attitude to see that he had been elected to be the next president, just, oh, my goodness, I'm I'm never going to forget that. <laughs> but, yeah, that was definitely a pivotal moment for me as well because just because that was the first time I thought of black people in politics. And I know that that wasn't the beginning of black people in politics. It's just that... To me, it has felt like it had been so long since we had those really big figureheads because, like we were talking about earlier with education, if you're not in certain regions, you're not being taught about everything that's happening around you or more recent introductions of African Americans or Americans of any descent that's not European, or even if they're not American at all, you don't get to hear those stories. You only really get to hear about, I don't know, what the what they call here in Arkansas the good old boys have been doing and who they're getting elected into office. We're not taught about any type of advances that people of color have made or any strides that they've made. So seeing him during a time when I was just coming into adulthood was a really big moment for me and made me want to give back to my community more. And then more than him, Michelle, and everything that she is and gives to the universe, seeing her and learning her background and where she had come from and everything she had overcome and how hard she worked, was just so inspiring for me. And to see those two together, just, I don't know, it really, it was a really good time. 
in American history, I, I guess I can say. Um, but I think I think before before um, the election of President Obama, one of the things that hit me the most because after September, when September 11th happened, I was in like the sixth grade, but not really smart enough to know or emotional enough to understand why the adults around me were crying. But when I was in high school, Hurricane Katrina hit. And there was so much devastation. We started getting, like, an influx of people into our schools that were from New Orleans. And I was at an age to where I could understand the conversations with my grandparents about the lack of response that that community was receiving. And just seeing all of that happen to a community of color kind of did set my perception of how communities of color would be treated in the future and how we have always responded as a country to communities of color. So I think that was definitely the first thing that really shaped my perception of where I am in the country and what it means to me to be a part of this country. Yeah, I forgot about Hurricane Katrina. That was big. I think that was mm-hmm. total for, you know, a lot of black people. It was crazy. I, I can recall seeing the clips of when, like, Kanye West got on that, uh, I think it was, like, a fundraiser or something they were doing, like, mm-hmm. a bunch of musicians and entertainers. He was like, George Bush doesn't care about black people. That was crazy. Mm-hmm. I was like, dude, like, Kanye is, like, he's, like, really <laughs> doing it. You know, like, he had zero cares to get. I don't want to curse, but mm-hmm. you guys know how it goes. But yeah, he right. <laughs> he didn't really <laughs> at all. But yeah, that was that was crazy. That was crazy. Um, I got a little fun fact to share. So yeah, okay. The uh, Obama getting elected and everything was huge, definitely huge. I actually got the chance to uh, perform in the inauguration parade with the with the marching band in college. What? Yeah, yeah. It was freezing. I was a little pissed <laughs> a little bit. It was so cold. But, uh, you know, once we got the blood moving and started marching and, you know, I got up there to the podium where he was. I was like, Dude, this is going down to history. I'm going to tell my kids about oh, this, wow. my grandkids about this, great-grand, if I'm blessed to see that, you know. But, yeah, that, that was pretty cool for me. <clears throat> oh, that is so amazing. Uh, I would say I envy you, but I don't want to be out in the cold for anybody. <laughs> yeah, it was freezing. I don't blame you at all. Okay, so next I kind of want to go into adulthood a little bit. What were some of the things that you wish you had been prepared for when you became an adult? Like things that maybe weren't a part of your community, so you didn't even know that that was something that you needed to do or to have or something like that. When did you realize that basically being an adult was all a scam? Yeah, paying bills. (laughs) (laughs) Want to be a kid again. Yeah, everything finance. I don't think, you know, I was prepared to build any type of financial acumen. Um, 
I don't know if you guys know much about Detroit, but I like to say, like, Detroit is like a city of, like, I don't want to, what's the, the, the good word to use? Uh, I don't even know of a good word to use, as you guys will understand, not using Detroit slang, but, like, flashy. It's like a flashy city. Like, everybody is, like, always mm-hmm. shining, you know, like, got to have the, you know, most expensive shoes, the most expensive clothes, you know, the nicest car, and it's like, it's all a show. And everybody is spending money either as fast as they can make it or they're spending, you know, the little that they have trying to put on a, you know, show or, or convince people that they have money when they really don't. And mm-hmm. I think that all of this stuff is counterproductive when it really comes to building wealth. And uh, that's what I was taught, man. That's what I grew up saying. You know, uh, there are a lot, you know, drug dealing is a thing in Detroit. I'm pretty sure not just Detroit, but across the United States, but like, you know, the drug dealers will have like you know the nicest cars and you know, you know all all the girls and you know like I, I don't know it's just like something that you grew up admiring, not even knowing it. You know there was a guy that I grew up looking at, you know, and I was like, man, I want to I want to be like him, you know, when I was a kid. I didn't know he sold drugs, you know. I was a kid. Mm-hmm. I just knew that you know this girl, you know, was fine, and you know he always had on you know freshest gear and you know his car was nice and all this stuff his house was you know uh cool looking and i don't know it was just some, something that i admire and as i got older as soon as i started making money and becoming a professional i was spending it as fast as i can make it and i was like dude like, mm. you know like something isn't right and i don't know who told me about this book like shortly after i graduated college um i think it might have been a friend of mine Probably one of my oldest friends. So I went to kindergarten with this guy. Um, he told me about Rich Dad Poor Dad, and uh, hmm. it changed the game for me. Changed the game for me, and it, it made me think about like generational wealth and how the United States is set up right now. Like with most of the wealth being held with you know a small percentage of the population, um, and you know what we can do uh, as a people and what you can do in your own family trying to build like some generational wealth to kind of like get out the hole. Um, everybody's too stuck on living check to check. It doesn't matter how much money you make. It's like really how you spend money uh, that really dictates, you know, your wealth. You can be a doctor if you, um, and make, you know, millions of dollars and spend it just as fast as you make it. And if something happens, you're, you know, homeless just because you mm-hmm. have that, that mentality. So um, I know people that, you know, don't make a lot of money, but they, they make it work because they've made the right investments with the money that they do have and have gotten themselves out of some, some rough situations. So I think that the whole financial acumen thing isn't, you know, talked about enough in the black community, uh, in my community uh, in particular, when I was growing up, you know, I was taught to spend money. Like, you know, I'm not going to see them all. And I don't think that's uh, mm-hmm. any way to live. But yeah, that's my take on it. Adulting was a, a scam, you know. I don't know who tricked us into doing this. <laughs> um, for me, <laughs> I agree with you, Miguel, definitely 100%. Like, I feel like, you know, as soon as you got the money, go ahead and spend it. Get what you need. Show off that you have it. But once my dad was out the army and we moved, I got to see a side of the struggle. And I wanted to grow up so bad. Like I was a kid and I just wanted to grow up so bad so I can just hurry up and work and help my family out. That's 
how my mindset was. And it wasn't until mm-hmm. I actually grew up, <laughs> you know, that it was like, oh, okay, I just made this check, and now it's all gone for food and bills and other stuff like that. Like, okay, now, like, now what do I do? Now I feel like I need to get a second job. And now, but now at the mm-hmm. same time, now I got to go to school too, and I got to sleep, and I got to eat, and I got to do this. And it's just like, oh, wow. Kind of want to be a kid again. <laughs> Wait a minute, nobody told me <laughs> all of this. But also, like what Norvell was saying, I don't feel like it's really taught either. Like it's not taught really in school how to like really finance yourself or how to save or how to do anything like that. Like I didn't know any of this until I really went to college. Like I didn't know how to save. I didn't know how to balance anything. I didn't know nothing like that. I just knew spend it. I am right there with both of y'all. I, for some reason, whenever I get paid, like my appetite changes. But for some reason, I'm regular food is no longer good for me. <laughs> <laughs> it is ridiculous. I don't know why I'm this way. I don't know how my taste buds know that I got paid, but they do. <laughs> And that is my biggest downfall every time. Food, I don't, I don't care about showing off in my clothes or in my shoes. I'm going to eat. <laughs> but um, That's crazy. For, for me, um, the, biggest, the biggest scam that I found out was that you get this check and everything, and it looks nice. But when your bills come in, you know, that's like, it's no longer there. It's no longer a part of your life anymore. And just the way bills snatch everything away from you. And then having a kid, no one told me that paying for daycare was going to be like paying rent at a location that she didn't even stay at 24 hours a day (laughs) or seven days a week. And I don't know, it just it, nothing prepares you for that. And then seeing how being in a different income bracket could just rob you of so many things, so many, I don't know, benefits. And, like, all these people in the 1% can get these tax cuts, all these banks can get these bailouts, but, I don't know, average people can't make enough to put their kids in a decent school. And I think that's really ridiculous. (laughs) And that was the biggest scam for me. It's like, oh, you can have, you get your check and you can have health insurance, but you have to pay for it. It comes out of your check. So now your check's also less. And just all these little hidden fees of adulting have just really, they've really hurt me (laughs) over the past (laughs) few years. And I, I regret rushing to grow up like you, Natia. <laughs> I thought I wanted to be grown until I had to pay rent. <laughs> right. Yeah, that food thing was so relative. I felt that in my soul. That <laughs> oh, man. I'm at Ruth's Chris. I'm at uh, Benny Hanna. You know, mm. the day before that next check comes, you're eating ramen noodles. Right. That struggle. <laughs> 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 Where all the expensive taste come from, you know, now that I have some money. Yeah. Right. It's the other day I was okay with a is. double cheeseburger. <laughs> oh yeah. Growth. Growth for sure. <laughs> yeah, I think we all, you know, really 
had to learn like delayed gratification as we grew up. I know that was mm-hmm. a big thing for me. Like, I don't know, man, being broke growing up, I think growing up, you know, in the inner city, you wanted all these things cause, because you never had them. And I think that's what dictated a lot of my, you know, spending habits. Like, oh, you know, I always wanted these Jordans when I was a kid. I could never get them because, you know, my parents couldn't afford them. But now I have the money to get them. I'm going to get them, you know. So mm-hmm. it's, you're kind of like forced to, like, you know, have that mentality. Of, you know, I want it because I've never had it. And I think that's ideal to certain people, too. Um, mm-hmm. But, yeah, the financial thing is big. That's That's big for a lot of us because we think that, you know, in order for us to make money, we have to trade our time for money. And that's mm-hmm. something that I'm really, like, dialing in on now because I, I always want to, like, say, like, I want to make my money. I need to get another job or I need to, you know, figure out how to put my time to work for me. But it's not really your time, you know. You have to put your money to work for you. You, you have to make investments, mm-hmm. whatever that may be, because uh, your time is the, the one thing you can't get back, you know. Right. You make an investment, you can give that money away and it'll come back to you. But, you know, that time you can't get back. And You know, I'm I'm working so that I can have more time, so that I can spend more time at home, you know, with my son and do all those types of things that I want to do. But if you have to work, you know, 40 plus hours a week, that changes things drastically. But, yeah. Well, before we wrap up, I just want to make a couple of announcements. I wanted to announce the No Sleep Millennials Changing the World Virtual Town Hall Conference that we're going to be having, and the date and time are going to be provided at a later date. We want to have this town hall to bring millennials across the country together in a virtual town hall type of environment to discuss the issues and concerns of millennials, available resources, whether there should or, or whether there should be a national millennial agenda, and more. And we're also encouraging our listeners to send us any ideas or suggestions for what they would like to hear or talk about at the town hall at the no sleep at cwrmedia.net. We also have a Millennials No Sleep Forum group on LinkedIn. So if you would like to contribute, feel free to email or contribute on the LinkedIn group. We'll also be having a special September 11th episode. And um, Natiana is going to be the lead host for that episode. And we will also have a special guest that night. Did anybody else have anything they wanted to share before we go? I'm good. No, that's (laughs) it. All right. Well, you guys enjoy the rest of your evening, and I hope you all enjoyed the show. And we will be with you next Wednesday.